You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. Drought, violence, and a rapidly growing population are making famine all too common in Africa. As the continent's climate continues to change, food will only grow scarcer. Leaders from the Alliance for a Green Revolution met at Stanford to talk about how private industry and technology can improve the continent's food systems. Welcome. I'm Roz Naylor. I direct the Center on Food Security and the Environment here at Stanford. And it's my pleasure today to um, introduce the Symposium on Global Food Security. Before I get started, I wanted to just thank special donors that have enabled us to continue this symposium and to elevate it to what you're going to actually see today. Zachary Nelson and Elizabeth Horn have been extremely generous in um, their gifts to us to keep the community involved in these issues. So I thank Zach and Elizabeth. And I also want to thank Jeff Rakes, who's uh, here, who, as you know, is the Stanford chair of the board of directors of the trustees now. And Jeff has been the person that has really brought this amazing group to campus today that you'll be uh, have the pleasure of listening to. So we're going to talk today about can Africa rise to the challenge of feeding itself in the 21st century. And we're going to hear from a group of individuals from the, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA, who have all come from Africa, flying in last night, and this is an incredibly distinguished group that you're going to hear from, um, both on the panel and then afterwards at the reception. So what I want to do today is introduce our moderator, Earthrin Cousin, and Earthrin is then going to introduce the panel and lead the discussion. Before I do that, I just want to lay out uh, sort of the plan for the afternoon, we're going to have the discussion for about 45 minutes, and then we're going to open it up to questions by the audience. And if you have questions, I just ask that you stand up and introduce yourself so uh, the panel knows who you are, and make your questions relatively short and concise uh, so that we can have many questions. And then after the questions and the discussion, we will be having a reception out and back, and um, you'll have a chance to meet the full group from AGRA. With that, let me introduce Earthrin Cousin, <laughs> my friend and now colleague here at Stanford. Earthrin is the um, Payne Distinguished Lecturer at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and also a visiting fellow here at the Center on Food Security and the Environment. Earthrin came to us from the, being the Executive Director of the World Food Program and um, has that's when I was had a chance to meet her when she was really in the throes of the Syrian conflict, among other conflicts and natural disasters, <coughs> trying to um, literally keep people alive while doubling the budget, and thinking also about the long-run resilience of agricultural systems in Africa and around the world. And Earthrin is an exceptionally uh, talented individual. She's also, she's from Chicago, has a degree in law, and she is also a distinguished fellow at the Global Agriculture at the Chicago Council for Global Affairs. And so she holds a broad, a sort of global prominent position. I think her family teases her about how many distinguished fellow positions she has at one time. She was the executive director of the World Food Program between 2012 and 2017, 
Prior to that, she was the U.S. ambassador for U.N. agencies and food and agriculture in Rome, which is a Senate-confirmed position, which she held from 2009 to 2012. And she had a number of earlier jobs that were also very strategic and important in the food and agricultural area. She was the executive vice president and chief operating officer for America's Second Harvest, which is now Feeding America. So she has worked on U.S. hunger issues. Uh, she's played a, a dominant private sector role at Albertsons, has also been on many boards, including EFAD, which is the Organization of International Food and Agricultural Development, has been the White House liaison to the State Department, and the list goes on and on. She was listed as by Forbes as one of the 100 most powerful women, and she has several of those titles that goes along with her bio. We have been so lucky at FSC to have Earthrin come and spend the year with us because she brings so much knowledge of the pressing emergency issues, the broader strategic issues associated with food security, and great private sector, public sector background. And with that, I will just turn it over to Earthrin to run the show. So thank you. Thank you very much, Roz. And the one thing you didn't say is that I'm now hiding out in academia, so I appreciate you not saying that. But uh, I'm very pleased and honored to be here with you this afternoon. And uh, I'm also very excited about this panel that we're about to hear <coughs> from, because not only are they experts in the field of African agricultural issues, but they're all my friends. Uh, so it makes it even more fun. Um, so I want to start by going through the biographies of each of the members of the panel, and I'm going to ask you to indulge me because I want to give you a real sense of each of the individuals on this panel. Because it's not the, these aren't the kinds of individuals that normally come to Silicon Valley and make presentations. And so I think you need to have an understanding of the depth of knowledge that each individual brings to their presentation today. And so I will introduce each panelist. I will ask them as I introduce you to please take a seat on the, on the podium, on the stage here. And uh, as soon as we get everyone seated, we'll begin our conversation. Let me start with Dr. Agnes Kalibata. Dr. Kalabata, if you'll take your seat. Dr. Kalabata is president of AGRA, leads the organization's efforts by supporting and developing public and private partnerships, working to ensure food secure and prosperous Africa through rapid, sustainable agricultural growth by improving the productivity and livelihoods of millions of smallholder farmers across Sub-Saharan Africa. Prior to joining AGRA in September of 2014, Dr. Kalabata served as Rwanda's Minister of Agriculture and Animal Resources. It's where she and I first met. Because in this role, Dr. Kalabata was con widely considered to be one of the most successful agriculture ministers in Sub-Saharan Africa. As Rwanda's agriculture minister, her agriculture policies were hailed uh, by many as the most effective in the world. To say she and the leadership of the government turned agriculture around in Rwanda would not be an overstatement. 
The programs she implemented included smart programs connecting farmers to their neighbors, innovative cow sharing schemes, expansion of technologies linking farmers to food buyers and localized cooperatives. Far, cooperative farming programs. She and I even went out to the fields in Rwanda and danced with women who had expanded their yields tenfold because of her, her cooperative farming programs. Before becoming the, the, the agriculture minister, Dr. Kalabata held several other government leadership positions, including permanent secretary of the Ministry of Agriculture and deputy vice chancellor of the University of Rwanda. She also worked for the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture in Uganda and various other agricultural development organizations. She sits on a number of boards, including the International Fertilizer Development Corporation and the, if what we call IFPRI, the Advisory Council of the International Food Policy Research Institute. Dr. Kalabata has a distinguished track record as an agricultural scientist, policymaker, and thought leader. She completed her postdoctoral work at the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture in Kampala, Uganda. Dr. Kalabata earned her doctorate in entomology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she received a master's degree in agriculture and a bachelor's degree in entomology and biochemistry from Makerere University in Kampala, Uganda. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kalabata. <laughs> The next panelist I'd like to ask to join us on the stage is Dr. Rajiv Shah, who we call Raj. Earlier this year, the Rockefeller Foundation unanimously elected Dr. Rajiv Shah president as their president. Dr. Shah's election succeeded the long, successful tenure of Dr. Judith Roden, who we have the pleasure of having here with us today. <clears throat> The Rockefeller Foundation serves as a global leader of innovative philanthropy at the forefront of providing solutions to the world's most pressing challenges. Prior to joining Rockefeller, Dr. Shaw was appointed as USAID Administrator by President Obama in 2009 and was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. Dr. Shaw was charged with reshaping the $20 billion agency operations. And again, that's when I got to know Raj because he came in shaking things up. <laughs> During his tenure, he brought an elevated innovation inside the agency, promoted public-private partnerships, and drove the rethinking of internal practices and shifted how dollars were spent to deliver stronger and more impactful results. Dr. Shaw secured bipartisan support, and nowadays that's hard to do in Washington, <laughs> that enabled USAID to dramatically accelerate its work to end extreme poverty. As an example, despite partisan gridlock, you will recall this at the end of the Obama administration, two significant, not one, but two significant presidential priorities, Feed the Future and Power Africa, passed the House and Senate under his leadership with bipartisan support and were signed into law. And the Global Food Security Act, which has not been rolled back, thank you very much, is now the second largest global development legislation after PEPFAR. 
When Dr. Shaw left USAID in 2015, he continued to follow his passion for creating projects which help communities to thrive in the developing world by founding Latitude Capital, a private equity firm focused on power and infrastructure projects in Africa and Asia. He was also appointed a distinguished fellow in residence at Georgetown University. Before his service at USAID, Dr. Shaw served as Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics at the United States Department of Agriculture. He also held a number of leadership roles at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where in, in, during his tenure there, the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, with support from Dr. Roden at the Rockefeller Foundation, was actually begun. Dr. Shaw received his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Master of Science in Health Economics from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. He completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rajiv Shah. Dr. Usha Zair. Dr. Usha Zair is a director and chief technology officer at Maharashtra Hybrid Seeds Company, Private Limited, Mehoko, in India. Dr. Usha Zair is responsible for the research responsible for the research on plant technology transfers to farmer, utilization of new technologies, and tools including biotechnology for improving the quality and productivity of seeds in agriculture. Her work is aimed toward implementing emergency technologies, emerging technologies in the developing world. Dr. Zare served as a researcher at the University of Illinois from 1983 to 1990. She also served as a geneticist at the Purdue University studying sorghum and millet. And for those of you who are not agriculturalists in the room, you understand the importance of her research on sorghum and millet because those are the crops that will make a difference, two of the crops that will make a significant difference in sub-Saharan Africa, but we often call them orphan crops because the research is not performed in those areas. She, Dr. Dr. Zaire, during her graduate and postgraduate studies, worked in the area of tissue culture and transformation around these crops. Yeah, she did some work on soybeans too, and her group at the University of Illinois was the first to develop a system for soybean regeneration. But the, at, it was at Purdue where the first transgenic sorghum plant was produced <coughs> under her leadership. She serves as the director of the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. She also serves as the director of the Mayoko Research Foundation. Dr. Zaire was awarded her PhD in agronomy from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Zaire graduated with a BS in science from Wilson College at the University of Bombay, India, where she also earned a Master of Science degree. Welcome, Dr. Zaire. And I saved the, la the last, <laughs> the best for last, as they all say, Dr. Kanayal Nwanze. Dr. Nwanze is the immediate former president of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, EFAD. He began his term at EFAD's president on April 1st, 2009. And I must smile, and I know, Josette, you'll smile as well, and, and envy his ability to serve two terms. 
As EFAB president, Dr. Nwanze earned a well-deserved reputation as an advocate and a leader of change. In September of 2016, Agra, in fact, awarded him the first Africa Food Prize. The Africa Food Prize Committee was then chaired by the former president of Nigeria, Obasanjo, where when they chose him, Dr. Obasanjo said he was being chosen for his outstanding leadership and passionate advocacy in putting Africa's smallholder farmers at the center of the global <coughs> agriculture agenda. He made smallholder farmers sexy. <laughs> Dr. Nwanzi has over 40 years of experience across three continents in poverty reduction through agricultural rural development and research. Prior to EFAD, Dr. Nwanzi served for a decade as Director General of the Africa Rice Center. During his tenure, Dr. Nwanzi was instrumental in promoting new rice for Africa, otherwise known as Nurika rice a high-yield, drought, and pest-resistant rice variety developed specifically for the African landscape. Dr. Nwanzi also holds senior positions at a number of research centers affiliated with the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, CGIAR, and was instrumental in the establishment of the alliance of CGIAR centers. In 1975, shortly after earning his PhD in agricultural entomology from Kansas State University, Dr. Nwanza began his international career as a postdoctoral researcher with the International Institute for Tropical Agriculture. He also holds a Bachelor of Science degree in agricultural science from the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. And I should say he's a published author and of the book, uh, Bucket of Water, Reflections on Sustainable Rural Development, which you will hear more about from me as we go into the panel. Please. Now you see why I wanted to spend the time going through their bios. As, as my son would say, these are some bad folks. <laughs> but very seriously, because um, we have a very limited time together, let's just get right into it. And I'll start with you, um, and I'm gonna say Agnes. Yes, I'll start sir. with you. <laughs> Today, some 100 million of the farmers across Sub-Saharan Africa farm less than two hectares of land. Some 80% of those living in rural areas are poor. More than 30% of the rural population is chronically hungry, and 35% of the, of the under five-year-olds are stunted. By 2050, the bulk of the world's population growth will take place on the continent. In fact, some project that 1.3 billion will be added to the continent and Nigeria will grow larger than the size of the United States between now and 2050. Despite those numbers, the economic projections suggest the Sub-Saharan African agriculture market alone will top a trillion US dollars by 2030s. So my question to you, uh, is, is this projection achievable? If so, what role will AGRA play in making it a reality for the continent? 
Thank you, uh, Ethrin, and thank you, Jeff and Rose, Rose for, for having us here. Uh, so to the question that you're asking, I just wanted to start by looking back at my own life growing up on a farm, two hectares. Because actually, if it wasn't two hectares, it would be like weird to me, because that's what I grew up seeing. Most farmers I know had two hectares. I think the most important thing is not the two hectares, it's how you turn those farmers into viable farmers. Because most, most of African farmers are going to be 70%, 80% of African farmers are going to be two hectare type of farmers. So when Agra was formed in 2006, which actually what, the a year later in 2007, I joined the Ministry of Agriculture as permanent secretary, the ability of a farmer, an African farmer at that time, to find seed anywhere was next to impossible. I mean, I don't remember like any farmer would get seeds anywhere in the next 50 kilometers, say. Um, Joe, who is here, who was at the beginning of that whole journey, tells you there were 10 seed companies on the whole continent producing less than 2,000 metric tons. Today, we have over 110 <coughs> seed companies producing um, thousands of metric tons that is capable of growing 10 million hectares, capable of reaching over 15, 15 million farmers. So based on that alone, the ability to close the yield gap, farmers have actually moved from 0 0.5 tons of hect per hectare of maize when we are growing something called katumani, I don't know if you know katumani, <laughs> to now something like 1.6. We've tripled. But just even at that point, the gap is enormous. We need to get to four tons because you know what? A Rwandan farm at three tons will be able to compete in, in terms of price with international markets. Right now, a, a farmer producing 1.5 tons per hectare cannot compete price-wise. So the, the fact that the opportunities are beginning to form, the fact that the Agra has worked with the number in 18 countries across the continent to produce over 650 varieties that are available within 10, a distance of 10, 10 kilometers now, from over 100 kilometers to a distance of 10 kilometers, through uh, retail shops known as agro dealerships that are, that are are scattered around the continent, the opportunities are beginning to form that actually African farmers can feed themselves and actually can form businesses out of agriculture. The next thing I wanted to say is private sector, existence of private sector. When I became Minister of Agriculture in Rwanda, my biggest frustration was the fact that there was no private sector in the agriculture sector. It's like you're, you're trying, in, 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 people say that in the public sector we have a repulsion against private sector, but here you wish for it and there's nowhere to find private sector. So we have to grow it from scratch. So governments are beginning to understand the value of private sector and are thinking through how to grow private sector, putting the right policies in place. A number of African governments are working now with the World Bank on the ease of doing business so that they can help build the private sector. So that's beginning to take shape. Uh, one other thing now, which actually we are working on now as Agra, is public capacity to drive implementation and delivery, which is one of the biggest weaknesses now. I mean, Agra as an institution can only do so much, but these governments have the potential and the capacity to reach every corner of their countries. Mm -hmm. The problem is they are challenged by capacity to, 
to, to do that, BICA passed to design proper programs and BICA passed to implement these programs. A few countries are beginning to do that and we have a few examples with Ethiopia, Rwanda, Burkina Faso. You see a few countries around the continent that have begun to figure it out and we are learning from those countries and using those examples to support other countries to actually come up with policies and, 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 and models that will allow them to implement. I mean, here in the discussion we had in the morning, people are talking about the type of policies and how you build a policy environment that will allow delivery. So it's, it's on everybody's mind. So I have no reason to, 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 to question that our, with all of us putting together, we, we can deliver on this. This is something that is achievable. Okay. So with investing in smallholder farmers to make them turn them into businesses, increasing access to seeds, um, private sector, and building the capacity of the public. So I'll turn to you, Kanael. You've heard what, what Agnes has said. Over the past decade, as EFAD's president, you led the global response to the challenges and opportunities for agriculture development, particularly in rural areas. And, and as we said, specifically with smallholder farmers, focusing on smallholder farmers. With the projected population growth on the African continent and the expansion of the number of urban areas into megacities, is, is there an ideal agriculture, African agriculture system of the future that will help us achieve these goals? And if so, what does that system look like? Well, thank you, thank you very much, Etheridge, and thanks again, uh, Jeff, and, uh, for this uh, opportunity to share with you my thoughts. Of Etheridge, I, I don't believe there's an ideal agricultural system for Africa, or for African countries, to be more correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if I can turn your question around, what, what does Africa need to do to turn its agriculture around in order to meet the challenges? of future, of, of the projected doubling of his population to meet the challenges of food, of food security. And I will start off from what Agnes has just said. First, of course, is for us to see agriculture, no matter what size or scale, as business. That's crucial. To go from the subsistence level and to stop seeing poverty, to, to, to stop romanticizing poverty. Uh, poverty is man-made, it's not natural. So when you look at the African continent, one thing that has been very clear to me is that Africa is, by no means, Africa is by no means poor. In fact, Africa is very, very rich. Mineral wealth, from diamonds to bauxite, uh, the percentages are inc incredible. 15% of all reserves, uh, land, about 50 to 60% of all uncultivated agricultural land, 200 million hectares, uh, excess of sunshine, plenty of rainfall, kilometers of waterways, I mean, you name it, and a vibrant population, 60% of its youth below the age of 30. What other part of the world has this sort of, and we don't have earthquakes, <laughs> and typhoons, and hurricanes, and you name it. So I think the Africa, no country in the world ever transformed itself without going through an agrarian change. Mm -hmm. No country. Europe, 17th century, 
Japan, 18th century, 19th century, US, <laughs> your country, China, 20th century. Now, why should it be different from Africa? So first and foremost, you have to have a total agricultural transformation. But Agnes already gave the ingredients. Seed, fertilizer, irrigation. But I think the key problem that we face is the policy dimension. And that is all linked with governance and leadership. Mm -hmm. That's going to be our biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. If we have that corrected, and you have the rule of law, then Africa's agricultural transformation is going to be such where small producers today become aggregated. They have to be aggregated into cooperatives and SMEs and companies, and you have to have the whole value chain. And if you ask myself, if you ask, if you ask yourself, in the, by 2050, who is going to feed Africa? Is it the farmers of today in their 60s? A woman with a hoe in her hand and a baby on her back? I think that's what you have up there, isn't it? No, it's the youth of today. But they're not going to be using the same technologies that exist today. Just think of what IT can do. Aggregation, organization of farmers groups. So the elements are there. I see the, I see the agriculture of tomorrow meeting the challenge, I mean, for Africa meeting that challenge is Africa become, being at the forefront of feeding the world. Africa has to be able to feed itself first. Uh, we have all the opportunities there. If we don't do that, I mean, if it's not going to happen in my generation. I think my generation has failed. In fact, what my generation has done successfully is to fail, failure. <laughs> and we're out of it. It's the future, not even my own children, my grandchildren perhaps, or my great-grandchildren. They are the ones to bring about this change. So I see huge potential in transforming African agriculture. First, it's got to be built on what we have small producers, but to see it as business, as a money-making business, as an economic activity that generates wealth, mm -hmm. creates jobs, feeds people, and brings about the emergence of cohesive societies. Mm -hmm. And until we do that, and until we're able to manage our resources properly, until we have the right leadership and correct governance structures and institutions that function correctly. I think that's what we're going to be looking at in the next century. Mm -hmm. Well, you just made me very uh, sad because I've been saying to the world that we were going to do this in my lifetime. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but creating wealth, jobs, focusing on people, all of the, the ingredients that, that we've heard you talk about before. But the one issue, and I'll go to Raj on this, that we haven't talked about is how do we finance this work uh, that is necessary. And the Rockefeller Foundation not only provides financial support to AGRA, but for a large number of other organizations and projects around the entire sub-Saharan continent. So Raj, I'd ask, what do you see as the hurdle or hurdles to scaling from direct development programs to creating the kinds of systems and structural changes that uh, both Agnes and Kanael has talked about? And how can foundations and other donors um, or help us help those who are working in these areas overcome those hurdles? Well, well, thank you. I, you know, I think Agnes and Kanael both laid out the groundwork. First, you have to have a goal. And the goal of achieving four tons per hectare of 
called maize yields in Africa, if achieved, uh, would be a tremendous step forward in both food self-sufficiency, but also in fighting hunger and chronic malnutrition. And uh, I won't get into all the data substantiating that, but you know, it is true that a dollar spent in agricultural research yields $23 of real value to those smallholder farm families. It is true that every society, as Kanayo mentioned, that's achieved rapid economic development and social mobility has done it based on a fundamental agricultural transformation where those yield increases are coupled with a population decrease of people working in agriculture, right? It's very, very small percentage here in the United States that are actually farming uh, and, and allowing people to go into other productive sectors of the economy. And that's really what success looks like. The fact that Agra has gone from 0.5 tons per hectare to 1.6 is a demonstration that can be achieved. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, the seed program at Agra has produced more than 150 improved varieties and put them out in the field, supported more than 110 seed companies, and built the system of hundreds of agro dealerships that allows uh, farmers to interact with a commercial market for both inputs and, and output sales is laying the groundwork for success. But it starts with having a clear goal, mm -hmm. knowing how to measure it, and documenting outcomes. And Agra has done that, I think, quite rigorously over its 11-year mm -hmm. uh, institutional life. I'd say second is what Kanayo mentioned, which is you, you have to, like we talk about money until we're blue in the face. That's not going to solve the problem if the policies are in the way. And uh, the chairman of Agra, Strive Masiwa, is here, but Strive played a big role in the 2012 uh, G8 summit, which you Earth, were a big part of as well, <laughs> when, we, when we said, okay, donors can do more and will do more. In that case, President Obama used the G8 to get, uh, to get folks, to, to get other countries to say, let's increase our investments in agricultural development in Africa. But it started with African heads of state at a head of state level committing to a concrete and specific set of policy reforms. Uh, that we had to hammer out as a precondition to being able to come to that meeting. And I, I remember uh, it, at the end, some worked better than others, to be honest. But I do remember just putting in the time of sitting with leaders and saying, Are, will you commit to these policy reforms? And folks saying, some saying, yes, we will. Others saying, no, we won't do the number 11 and number 12. But it's that level of policy engagement to ensure that the groundwork exists for real private investment in agriculture, real commercialization of the ag sector, mm -hmm. real access to these improved seed varieties. And, uh, and Agra is now doing that as part of its grand new strategy going forward that I hope Agnes can tell us about in 11, in 11 African countries. And then finally, after those two pieces are in place, it takes resources. And uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when, when the world made a huge collective investment in agriculture in Asia and Latin America, for example, uh, it succeeded at, at, do, at, at promoting a green revolution that changed the face of hunger and poverty. Uh, in the 1860s, in the midst of a civil war, when Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrill Act and made a huge public <laughs> investment in land-grant universities and American ag extension in this country, it, over 50 years, transformed the face of our agriculture and made us the most productive staple grain economy in, in the world. So, uh, resources are required, and the truth is, in the 70s, and then and really in the 80s, and by the time we got to the 1990s, uh, the level of public investment in agriculture had just disappeared mm -hmm. completely. 
the only reason I think we're here today is in 2003, Kofi Annan brought together heads of state in Maputo, and African heads of state started the process by saying, uh, with a lot of cajoling and support <laughs> from folks in this room, that we're going to spend 15% of our public budgets on agriculture. Mm -hmm. Without that kind of commitment, I don't think any of this would have happened. Mm -hmm. Then in 2005, six, uh, Dr. Roden was leading the Rockefeller Foundation, and and Gates and Rockefeller came together and I think did an extraordinary thing in helping to create this institution of, of AGRA as a, as a technical institution focused on this problem. In 2009, President Obama, with your doing a lot of the shoe leather work, you know, raised $20 billion in commitments through the L'Aquila Summit because we said there's a global financial crisis, we're gonna spend hundreds of billions of dollars bailing out the financial system. What about those who are suffering from a food crisis. And you'll remember, in 2008, we were looking at pictures. The cover of The Economist had a photo of a little girl in Haiti mm -hmm. eating a mud cake, mm -hmm. which is exactly yeah. what it sounds like yeah. because of a food price crisis uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, <coughs> that many in this room worked on mm -hmm. and, and led to that political motivation. So what's happened since? There's been an increase in public investment in agriculture. That's a good thing. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about the fact that I think European donors and the United States are uh, decreasing their overall foreign assistance commitments, redirecting the limited amount of money we spent on, on helping countries stand on their own two feet and be productive and integrated in a global economy. We've taken a meat cleaver to that in this country with, with the current administration proposing 30, 40% cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, because AGRA is proven it's a results-oriented institution, uh, it has survived that and, in fact, garnered even greater investment from the public sector. But, uh, but we have to change the larger, broader trend mm -hmm. around foreign aid and foreign assistance to continue uh, the progress I think we've seen and that we hope for. Mm -hmm. Well, clear goals, policy development, and then resources. Um, and so you talked about uh, the investment that Rockefeller and Gates made, and I talked about your work there. We can't forget about Jeff being at the Gates Foundation then, too, because it was his leadership that uh, ensured that we had the resources that were necessary. Yeah, in fact, create. I got a lot of my practical training in farming on the, on the Rakes farm, uh, so I, I feel like I earned my right to be here, Jeff. <laughs> Hard work. So, so Usha, let me, let me turn to you, because you're a sex, successful Indian business operator, um, and your company is now pursuing opportunities on the African continent. Um, and you've heard what the, the, the three panelists have talked about is what's necessary. What we haven't talked about are public-private partnerships. And the, the, can you talk a bit about the role of public-private partnerships in creating food systems in, across Sub-Saharan Africa? And, and how do we move from simply talking about public-private partnerships to creating the ones that really work? And give us from your experience in India what you think we can learn to help leapfrog the challenges that you saw in developing those partnerships as we create the ones that we'll work on for sustain, sustainable food systems on the continent. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you, Jeff and Stanford University for hosting us here. Um, I'll start with the um, partnership which really worked well in India and parts of Asia. And, uh, very happy to be sitting next to Raj because I actually wouldn't be here 
if it wasn't because of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation coming to India in the 60s and promoting partnership with the government of India, with private sector, with entrepreneurs to promote good quality planting material. And as a consequence of that, the inputs from the scientific um, community in the United States primarily mm -hmm. um, led to adoption of high-yielding varieties in sorghum. Uh, everyone talks about rice and wheat, but actually it was not just rice and wheat, but it was the mm -hmm. sorghum, the millets, the corn mm -hmm. in the central and southern part of the country, which led to the overall uh, agricultural revolution that we see. So um, this is... Uh, and you, you know, all the equation is right for Africa as well. The partners are together. Um, but to me, um, we have done a lot of talking about public-private partnership and not so much on the ground on implementing it in a manner which happened in Asia, for instance, where there was policy mm -hmm. and most importantly, government will. Mm -hmm. The government was mm -hmm. willing to do whatever it took to make sure that agriculture was transformed at the end of it. Um, so a, a partnership is critical for success, but I think partnership today, we have to look at it from a, on a crop by crop basis because in maize, the partnership would look very different because there's so many players. In sugarcane, the partnership would look different. So I wanna use the example of sugarcane, for instance, I know it's not a big crop, but still. So when I think about partners for sugarcane, I wanna talk about irrigation partners mm -hmm. because it uses so much water. So can I partner with a drip irrigation uh, or irrigation specialist uh, who could be public, who could be private, who then allow us uh, to uh, grow the same amount of sugarcane but with less water. So this could be a new form of partnership. Then you still need the partnership where uh, farmers have some assurance about markets uh, availability. It could be a government partnership. It could be. So I think uh, talking about public-private partnership to me, uh, maybe, but partnership, yes, definitely. And we need to look at for which crop, what is the critical requirement. Mm -hmm. And depending on that, we think about who the right partners are to get it done. And that's great. The policy and having governments with the, the will to make the partnerships work is, I think, a, a, an important uh, factor. Um, which takes me right back to you, uh, Agnes, because you, each one of you talked a bit about policies in government and the role of government. Um, so often on the continent, the challenge is governance. And we can't talk about it as a continent. We have to talk about it as countries. And in many of the countries where agricultural opportunities exist, there we have governance challenges. So am I right about that? Do you agree? And if so, what role does AGRA perform in helping countries overcome those governance challenges? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Just to pick up from uh, what Usha is saying, India became successful because of two things. There was a prime minister that was ready, said, actually, I think Indian's revolution began in front of the office of the prime minister. She, he, he planted the seed right there, saw it grow, and said, I want it everywhere. So the leadership was very critical. Now, the reason Agro was created as an institution that looks across the continent was recognizing that Africa's leadership 
is going to be challenging. There are so many countries, there's no one leader that is going to say, let's take it to the farmer. You're going to have 101 leaders that are thinking differently. So Agra tries to bring the, the idea that technologies are very critical, but also the fact that technologies need the right policies, like uh, uh, President Kanai was saying, to be able to take them to the farmer. And those policies are very challenging to build. It's, you have to have the capacity to do a policy like the discussions we had in the morning. Now, the key challenge we find across the continent is the capacity to build the policies to support an environment of technology delivery to the farmer. Because right now, you find that some of the things the people are dealing with are very basic. The lack of a regulatory environment, which makes it very difficult for private sector to be in a place. The lack of a regulatory environment, which makes it very difficult for farmers not to have fake seed. You know, the idea of fake seed is like becoming a huge business, or fake fertilizers is becoming a huge business. So uh, Agra is, is, what we are trying to do is trying to understand what did other countries do differently, where we've seen successful green revolutions. In fact, as recent as, as, as China, for example, uh, well, what are they doing differently? Whether it come, it's all the way from land and land policy issues that make farmers commit differently when they're engaging in agriculture. Uh, whether it is access to financial issues and the kind of tools that are put in place to make it possible for women farmers to access finance. Uh, whether it is... Um, uh, the, the, the whole thing I talked about, private sector. So we see that all these challenges need specific police tools. And what we are trying to do is to work with the governments to understand how to build a policy environment, but also to work with other stakeholders to advocate for that policy environment to take effect. Now, but from a governance perspective, we are working with countries to actually take on CADAP, plan properly. But a plan is not good enough if a plan is not prioritized in an environment where you have restricted resources. So we are trying to tell our countries, prioritize your plans, be very clear of the two things that are very critical to you driving a successful agricultural sector. That's what we did in Rwanda. We didn't try to drive everything. We picked two, three things that contributed about 60% to our GDP and we were able to move. So that's what we are telling countries, prioritize, Put in place your implementation uh, mechanisms that help you deliver and be accountable because you're using other people's resources. You have to tell them where their money is going. You have to show them the results. So, and you, you're building a base that will allow you to pull in your own resources. So unless we do these things and really try to go the extra mile, we'll not be able to, agriculture will not transform and the next economies will not be able to transform. By doing that in Rwanda, we are actually able to reduce poverty by 20% in a period of six years, just by investing, in a rigorous investing in the agricultural sector, doing what the CADAP required us to do. Now, what we are trying to do from a continental perspective is actually taking that to the continent. We are, Raj, we are, you will be happy to know that we are actually trying to work with BMGF and others and African Union to actually get a scorecard in the agricultural sector working and start asking ourselves. So, Mr. Your Excellency, if, if you don't know what to do, there's help. Agra can help, so and so can help, there's help. But let's get moving. Mm -hmm. And this is how we track it, and this is how we measure it. So with the scorecard, you can see where you're making progress, but also you can see what is difficult for the rest of the for the whole continent. And then Agra knows that it needs to put its weight behind this with, with, with our partners. So I, I think there's a real opportunity uh, using the... the the energy 
of one country learning from, from another country through what Agra is doing across the continent to actually be able to get the continent to move at, at, at a different pace than we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I must come back to you on this and ask you though, do you see scorecards made public or scorecards just for the government? So the question is, if we're talking about transparency, is it transparency to donors on what they're, how they're scoring on scorecards as well as to the governments themselves? It's interesting that you say that. For me, a scorecard that does not actually track donor investment is not good enough because most of these countries are depending on donor support to get moving. Now, through the Pulse Declaration and everything, we do make commitments. We have to come through on those commitments to support these countries, exactly the point you're making, Raj, mm -hmm. around the fact that, you know, support to agriculture is dwindling. It's, it's, it's up and down. In 2008, we got an up, and we've been going on that. And in fact, last year, in 2016, with your support, Jeff, and, and the rest of the board, we started the Seize the Moment campaign specifically because we were saying, this is not the time to let go of supporting African agriculture. And you could see that with uh, all these other commodity crises and everything, everybody was losing interest. And we were saying, no, we cannot let agriculture go down. And, and I think we've managed. Every AGRF, we've been seeing a lot of interest in in, in keeping the momentum going in agriculture. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Kanayal, if I may, come to you. Um, we, Agnes talks about leadership of governments, uh, the regulatory environments, transparency, scorecards. One area she didn't talk about that you talk about in your book, and I will hold up Kanayal's book. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm shameless for you. Thank you, you won't do Thank it, you. I'll do it for you, a bucket of water. Uh, it is, if you want to know about African agriculture, I would suggest you read his book. But let me very, go back to the question. And, and the one area she didn't talk about, that the governments, you talk about governments, are pursuing uh, to achieve um, sustainable, more sustainable, durable food systems, is uh, the issue of uh, innovation. And in your book, you say the most exciting innovations don't always emerge from laboratories. And so what kinds of examples can you give us as a scientist of what role technology and innovation play in achieving this trillion dollar African opportunity, African agriculture opportunity? Thank you. Uh, before, I, before I answer your question, I need to take a, minute, a second. Um, you know, Agnes, I don't believe that African agriculture, the transform Transformation of African agriculture is dependent on aid. It is not. <laughs> African agriculture will transform itself when leaders invest in agriculture and rural development. And it has to be intrinsic. It's an internal process. De development is not something we do for or to people. Development is something people do for themselves. Our role is to support, to guide, to catalyze, but not to lead, because they must own it. I see the, I see the, I see, I see the role for international development assistance to kickstart, to initiate. But change doesn't come about by itself. It has to be made to happen by those who want to change. And this goes back to governance and leadership as well. They're all interwoven. Mm -hmm. But I want to be clear about that. As I said, no country ever transformed itself on the basis of 
external aid. We're all scientists, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. A tree, a plant can only grow strong when its roots are fairly anchored in its own soil. Only then can it make use of the energy of the sunlight from air. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And this is very key. <laughs> it's a fundamental process. So having said that, uh, innovation, that is true. I mean, innovation, of course, a lot of innovation occurs in the lab, in Silicon Valley, and of course here in Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, from my experience in Africa, Asia, Latin America, some of these innovations are very simple. Let's take the case of fertilizer, fertilizer application. You know, we all say, well, farmers are very poor, they can't afford to use a fertilizer. Fertilizer and irrigation as old as the Nile civilization. It is, it is pitiful because the woman that you see up there probably is not part of the five or six, uh, uh, sorry, 13 or 18 percent of African farmers that use fertilizer compared to 40% in Asia and maybe 60% in Latin America. But think, think about in the Sahel where farmers have to apply fertilizer to their millets or sorghum or parts of uh, dry land, East Africa. So what did ICRISAT, one of the international centers, the one based in, in India where I spent 18 years of my career, develop the simple bottle cup technology, the application of microdosing fertilizer. Mm -hmm. Now you will say, what has, what, what has a bottle cap got to do with fertilizer application? Very simple. No farmers don't have the money to buy a 100 kg fertilizer bag of fertilizer, but they can aggregate and use it. Simple bottle cap. Apply bottle cap fertilizer with the seed to the planting hole. Is that innovation? That's innovation. That is innovation. <laughs> well, but then take, take another innovation, which, which, which again is also technology-based, but it's use and application. It's a bit different. We partner with Intel to develop small digit, digital equipment for farmers in Asia uh, to measure when to plant, how much fertilizer to apply, or how much irrigation. And a good story we always tell, partnership with Intel, my, for my institution, IFAD, was the ability for rice producers to measure salinity or fertilizer application. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, a simple technology that was meant to guide them in the application of fertilizer and the rest of them helped a farmer, a woman in this particular case, like in most cases, is women, mm -hmm. to reduce her fertilizer application because she had been over-fertilizing. Mm -hmm. Now, that simple technology can, she can use, or somebody can use and tell her how much fertilizer to apply. So she actually saved money. Mm -hmm. I can give you several others. You know, um, you must have heard the story about the regreening of, of the Sahel. The regreening of the Sahel. And this was a very simple technology of how farmers were able to capture rainfall and to add simple mulching, and they call them in the, in the Sahel. Basically, this started in Niger, in the village of Batodi. Uh, the Milun, it's a half moon. It's a half moon structure that you build with, with rocks and things. And it captures rainwater. It's a small catchment, and you can plant your, your trees and what have you. Mm -hmm. And over 20 years, 25 years, the whole of Batodi 
hundreds of acres or hectares of, of, of Sahel dry land was reforested, reforestation. Now, this is a very small structure, half moon structure. Not, not only that, they can now add mulch as well as some animal manure and produce vegetables as well. Now, is that the innovation? Of course it's innovation. I think basically what we, what we, at least, what I learned in all of this is that innovation doesn't always start in the lab. It actually starts, if you listen to what farmers are doing or listen to what they're saying. And sometimes it's just taking a very simple idea from the farmers and turning it around and doing it differently. <coughs> innovation is not always something new. And innovation is not necessarily a negation of the past, of what is old. It can basically mean throwing a new light into an old technology and doing it differently. It's innovation. We get it. <laughs> it doesn't need to be high tech. Even here in Silicon Valley, you can say that and say it proudly. Um, Raj, I want to come to you on a, on a statement that, that uh, Agnes talked about, the need for financial assistance resources. Kanael says, nope, it's not about the aid. Um, I would say, but what about investments? And that we need investments in agriculture. And they, in fact, IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute and the International Institute for Sustainable Development issued a joint report recently that said that we will require $11 billion in additional uh, investments to support the achievement of SDG2. They say that $6 billion of that needs to come from the countries themselves but four billion needs to come from outside. Now, here's the challenge. What we're beginning to see is that, for example, you had uh, some of the richest philanthropists come together here in the United States recently and uh, to talk about the investing for the, achieving the sustainable development goals, $500 million, and they prioritized um, education, um, the global health and inequality. Agriculture and food security weren't on that list. We don't have a food crisis like 2009 happening right now that would suggest that we, can, we have the attention on the front pages. How do we keep agriculture at the top of, as a priority for investors and what do we need to do to ensure that agriculture is seen as uh, a, a viable investment? Well, you know, it's obviously difficult, but uh, I think it starts with maybe admitting that it's been the policy environment in many of the countries that uh, everyone here has a lot of experience working mm -hmm. in has been, over the past period of time, relatively unstable. Where, you know, where you have a leader and a policy framework that says, okay, we welcome investment, we're going to protect commercial property rights, uh, we're going to invest in the kind of infrastructure that can reduce the in-country transportation of cost-related transportation of goods like fertilizer in or backhaul out. And, uh, and then there's a change uh, and, you know, investors are stuck in an environment where that's much less conducive to private investment. So I think first and foremost, you have to have a set of principles 
which now have been agreed to as part of, Agnes mentioned, the CADAP. That's the Comprehensive African Agricultural Development Program, right? As part of that, uh, there are a set of principles on private investment that countries have agreed to that AGRA has supported. Uh, there has to be visibility, like on this scorecard, to making sure people stick with those principles, okay. even as there are leadership changes. And leaders understand the very, very long-term consequences of uh, expropriating land or mm -hmm. corporate assets and, and private and disrupting uh, property rights in that context. So that's one is policy stability. Mm -hmm. The second, <clears throat> I'm actually, is a little bit of a, a, a slight difference from what uh, Kanaya said, although he's entirely right oh. in his points about innovation. <laughs> but some of us, and he was there, of course, were just in this phenomenal presentation about uh, the data and big learning revolution. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Friedman wrote a, a nice piece yesterday or today about Nanda Nilakani and what's happening in India. But it is true that uh, communities in rural African countries that are part of the AGRA program, for example, uh, are already or will soon be data rich before they are financially rich. And the, you know, it's, it's uh, something that this community at Stanford and Silicon Valley can do is help all of us understand what that means to accelerate just sheer opportunity, whether it's opportunity for commercial investment, mm -hmm. which is your question, or just opportunity to, to be more efficient at, at the public mission of support for agricultural development. And you know we've supported at Rockefeller uh, a couple of examples in that area. Like you can, w using that data, you can do a much better job of designing private commercial insurance products for farmers. Mm -hmm. Really, no no big country's been really successful at an agricultural transition without taking risk out for farmers. And it's a lot to ask farmers to buy all that fertilizer when it might rain, it might not rain, mm -hmm. they might lose their investment and there's no public insurance program supporting them. Well, maybe it's the case that, that big data and machine learning will allow us to get so efficient at providing insurance products that either the public subsidy required to put that system in place will go down dramatically or it can be done on commercial terms as it's being done in some really interesting places uh, around Africa. So that's just one example. Another one's the one we saw that where you all presented that phenomenal information about using satellite data to really map and understand uh, crop yields and performance. And, and it's only a matter of time before aggregating different forms of data allows you to be really predictive in that context, uh, which, which can have big impacts. We already see information technology, the fact that everyone has mobile connectivity, everyone uh, in sub-Saharan Africa means you can have a different form of uh, pricing systems and market pricing systems, access to traders uh, and, and options that you didn't have five or six or seven years ago. So unlocking the data revolution to create commercial opportunities in agriculture, I think will be a big part of the innovation going forward. And we got to take advantage of that too. Well, I'm sorry, I, Raj, I'm not. I'm not saying you're not correct. I mean, I'm you're just totally giving you correct. a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> so what I was saying, what I was saying basically was, all innovation yeah. doesn't necessarily have to come from the lab, or from Silicon Valley, or from Stanford. There are innovations, <laughs> yeah. you know, practical mm -hmm. innovations, which yeah. are just basically ground up. And we have to we have to be able to we, we should we should listen to what farmers are saying and what they're doing. And there's mm -hmm. a lot that we can learn from them and then see how we can apply them. Mm -hmm. 
So we talked a lot about seeds when we talk about, and I want to talk about, since we're talking about innovation and seeds, and I go back to Usha, because um, you've done a lot of work around seed innovations and at the Maharashtra Hybrid Seeds Company, which is one of India's largest seeds company. And it's, it's been reported that the company is planning to move your new technologies, including genetically modified seeds, to, to South Asia and to Africa. And uh, so what role do you believe that uh, GM seeds will play in helping Africa feed itself uh, in the world? And how do you overcome the, 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 the kind of regulatory restrictions that you've seen in India around these issues as you move to bring this technology onto the continent as an innovation to move us forward? Yeah. I think uh, Raj and Kanayo already talked so much about innovation and I just want to build on that and also talk about very briefly on the GM technology, but talk about innovation and what role from a technical, you know, from a biological standpoint it has had in agriculture and what impact it has had. So uh, as a plant breeder, we're always talking about innovation. So when we, uh, when Jeff grew his first hybrid maize on his farm, corn, uh, it doubled their yields or at least increased them significantly. Now, the question uh, the plant breeder is asking is what innovation is appropriate for which farmer community or which crop? So if we uh, talk about an innovation <coughs> where you go from a variety to a hybrid and it improves uh, productivity, then that is the appropriate innovation for that particular farmer. In some situation, we have used uh, GM technologies uh, which have been appropriate, particularly in cotton and, of course, Africa. Mm -hmm has significant acreage under cotton, so that technology would be very appropriate uh, for the continent. And um, I don't think from a safety uh, standpoint, because the safety of that technology is proven in the Americas, in Australia, mm -hmm. in South Africa, Asia. So that really is not a concern. And uh, the, um, the suspicion and resistance that uh, we see for uh, GM technologies uh, is of course real that you uh, you know you have to come up with strategies and approaches to address that but I think in the process what has happened is uh, a general negative environment to a certain extent towards innovation in agriculture which I feel is bad for agriculture for farmers uh, to have the best of technologies. Why is it that the African farmer and the Indian farmer should not have access to what the American farmer has access to today and reaps benefit from it? And so from that perspective and from a perspective of a plant breeder, we need to really talk about the toolbox. You know, so it's mm -hmm. the hybrids, the varieties, the mm -hmm. uh, GM technology. Tomorrow it'll be the gene edited products and then uh, after that, we will talk about the satellite-based imaging uh, uh, data that we will use for developing drought-tolerant crops for that very, very small micro-environment that existed in the one district in Nigeria. And so I really want to not focus so much on GM technology, but really emphasize on the importance of innovation for agriculture from a science perspective. You know, we have uh, had many uh, examples of the other innovations which also help the farmers, but farmers must have access to the best if they want to get themselves out of their current situations. I love that. Farmers must have access to the best. 
and, and to innovations, to the policies, to the regulatory environment, as well as the resources. Before I go any further, I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. We are at Stanford, and, and uh, I know that there are a number of people who are probably chomping. Let me start over here. That's the first hand I saw, and then I'll come over on this side. Go ahead. I'm a senior fellow here at FSI in the Center for International Security and Cooperation and also a professor of African history in the history department. And I would love to hear the panel talk explicitly about three issues, biodiversity, food diversity, and climate change, and how these figure into your plans. Thank you. Okay, we'll take one other question and then we will go back to the panel. Uh, your hand, in the, in the, go ahead. Yeah, uh, my name is Kiri. I'm a uh, founder of uh, an organization called Blue Raya. Um, we use uh, solar energy and remote monitoring systems to actually provide access to clean water and irrigation water. Uh, my question is about systemic change because uh, I'm more interested in seeing like the long-term impact on uh, rural populations, people at the bottom level of the, of the pyramid. So uh, to me, I, I think that we need to think in a more holistic way, like taking uh, into account the minimum uh, need, annual income need of a, of a given uh, household or population, and then finding the best solutions to actually um, address their issues all over the way so that they reach at least an average annual income that's decent in order to have uh, a decent life. Okay. So my question is, uh, why uh, do governments are not open enough to new approaches that are kind of venture-oriented and um, fast-moving, which creates uh, large impact, but requires uh, intensive investments? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Why don't we take one more before we go back to the panel? Go ahead. Hi, I'm Timothy Childs. I'm CEO of a company called Treasure 8 and the Future Food Center on Treasure Island. And I want to say, what an amazing panel. I just want to say the fact that the board came all the way to Silicon Valley to have this meeting is a nice signal. And um, welcome to the Bay Area, if enough people haven't said it. Um, I'm, I'm interested about, are there any programs in the new phase that are focusing on creating, uh, transforming the commodity crops into more value-added processed foods um, or uh, pre-processed uh, ingredients that could be tied into entrepreneurialism in the cities and or for export? More value added processing that could be transformed into foods? Okay. Perfect. All right. So who wants to start? Uh, we could spend a, another couple hours on here. Let's start with the <laughs> Um Maybe we start with that very question. And, and in this case, um, I make reference to the, my favorite, the baby food factory in Rwanda mm -hmm. that uh, World Food Program has been, has participated in, you know, um, helping the country come up with a, a way of adding value to food that actually takes value to the farmer because uh, the baby food factory in Rwanda signed up to purchase 
uh, significant volumes of their food from smallholder farmers following up on the, uh, the Purchase for Progress program that was started by World Food Program. So, so th this company, um, $50 million investment, mm -hmm. produces uh, million, I mean hundreds of tons of, of baby food f to address the issue of malnutrition and purchases maize and, and, and soybean from farmers. And these farmers are definitely uh, getting now better prices because they are directly linked. They are directly linked to the factory. They supply the factory. And what the factory did even better, they have access to very affordable finance, something you can, very difficult to find in, in that part of the world. So they negotiated with, with, um, with, with banks to give farmers that are supplying them very good uh, rates of, of financing so that they can supply. So, so it's beginning to happen <coughs> in a few places. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, think, I think earlier today um, we saw a video of, El is it Elsie from Ghana? Mm -hmm. Uh, where you know, transforming, transforming you know, cassava into high-value crops, into high-value high products, sorry. Um, I think also this is happening in the, at, at village level. Uh, one, one thing I, I've noticed that in the African context, there, has been, there hasn't been as much progress as you will see in parts of Asia, particularly India, where I lived for 10 years, or in Latin America, mm -hmm. where I saw a lot of transformative processes. Co cooperatives, mm -hmm. women's cooperatives, transforming produce. Uh, in particular, what that impressed me in Bahia is uh, umbu. This part is a, is a, is a, is a, a tree produces a, uh, the, the the fruit can be used to make baby food, uh, alcohol as well, <laughs> <laughs> and a few other things. But I I, I think that the, the 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 opportunities are really huge. And I, what what Agra is also. Uh, focusing on is you know looking at the whole value chain. I think this is very for Africa. This is going to be very key, and this is where agriculture should be seen by youth, mm -hmm. not just as farming, mm -hmm. as a food system, mm -hmm. and that that's where there's a lot of entry points for them. You know, value addition. The simple the simple value addition of harvesting and storage mm -hmm. storage, prolonging the shelf life of fresh produce, for example. And I keep telling young people, see, you can make a lot of money by renting a room and buying a 1.5 kVA generator, like in my country where you have to provide your own electricity. And you can, you can store fresh produce, mangoes or oranges and whatever you have, for a few more weeks past harvest period and release them. Mm -hmm. Then you just clean them up, wash them, put them in plastic bags, mm -hmm. slap a label on it, and there you go. You can add value to that. Or digital technology, for example, you know, linking farmers to produce and stuff. So there's a lot of scope for that. I don't think, we really haven't explored and exploited the potential here in value addition in transformation of food, food crops. Um, and also, I think uh, in our discussions, we underplay the significance of biodiversity of food diversity and with respect to climate change. Uh, if you look at the old theory of farming systems, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where crop diversity was very, was very key in terms of ecological balances, and where mixed farming was seen at that time, mixed farming was a practice that was being encouraged, and then people, uh, farmers were encouraged to go into monocrops, mm -hmm. and now we're going back into 
you know, into mixed cropping mm -hmm. and, and, and what it does. And especially when you look at village or domestic village gardens or house gardens and what, what the opportunities that it also offers to uh, uh, women farmers. Now, along, along the inland valleys, and this is one ecology that African agriculture is not really exploiting because inland valleys are bound in Africa, practically in every country. And this ecosystem, this ecotype, offers tremendous opportunities for all year cropping and particularly for vegetables and, and fresh produce. And when you look at climate change, a lot of countries are going to be affected. High, highly productive ecologies are going to become less productive, and you have to look at how you can play on the biodiversity of, of, of systems. Um, the question on systemic, on why are governments not open enough to new up? It's not so much as why governments not. Now, Agnes addressed this issue. I think one of the biggest challenges we have, at least in many African countries, is the lack of, um, what is the word for it, of functional institutions. You know, when you talk about the policy, policy environment, it's not, that, it's, not, it's not that there are no policies. In many places, in many countries, there are policies. But you don't have functional institutions to implement and carry forward those policies. And as I said earlier, those policies are just worth the paper upon which, on which they are written. If you don't have institutions, successful countries have successful institutions. If you look at the most progressive countries today in Africa that are making headways in the agricultural sector, as well as in IT, they're not the rich countries. They have no mineral deposits. Mm -hmm. Well, they, have, they are not exploiting the mineral deposits. Mm -hmm. The rich countries with a lot of mineral deposits, oil and gas, you name it, the most corrupt, mm -hmm. poor governance, mm -hmm. no, no, the rule of law is zero, zilch. Take the case of the successful country, I will give you two of them, Rwanda and Ethiopia, based on highly successful agricultural systems with strong institutions, convinced and dedicated leadership and good governance. It works. So it's not that countries, it's just basically priorities are wrongly placed. You know, if you look at, if I could just, one second. <laughs> you know, no, when you look at, no, historically, historically, we should be ashamed of ourselves as Africans. Why? In the 60s and 70s and early 80s, when India was described as a hopeless case, China, a million people died out of, for farming, South Korea was coming out of a war. African countries supported South Korea. We sent aid, both human and financial assistance, to South Korea. Not one African country was a net importer of food. By 2000, China, India, Brazil, Korea, sending aid to Africa. Why? Our agricultural policies just crumbled. My country discovered oil, so did Gabon and Angola. <laughs> and that was it, the, the Dutch disease. So the whole point here is that there's got to be a total change in mentality. And leadership, not only at the highest political level, but leadership down through the whole fabric of the system. It has to change. And that is why I say change only begins from within not from outside. Mm -hmm. 
So you talked about, you touched on climate change and the role that climate change will play in, a, in, a, in achieving uh, the sustainable agriculture systems on the continent. But what role does irrigation play in, in addressing the challenges that uh, climate change is, is, is wreaking on the many parts of the continent? And I'll just I, I, throw I, I it could, out there. I could talk for an hour, so I'll let somebody else answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I can, I can say something about that. Um, a number of countries on the African continent now are thinking through how to support farmers with technologies through subsidies. And really, the, the bottom line for, for these subsidies is recognizing that no farmer will spend their very hard-earned cash on something they don't know. I mean, why would I trust your maize seed better than the maize seed I've grown for the last 25 years unless I've seen it perform? So, so these subsidies were started really as a way of extending knowledge to farmers. Now, countries are beginning to recognize that it's seeds and fertilizers are not an end in themselves, especially with climate change that they are going to have to do something to ensure that they secure their water sources. Because the total volume of water remains the same, but the spread is very erratic. The farmers are losing crops anyway. So um, countries have started thinking through not huge scale. Huge scale irrigation schemes are great at a, at a, at a country level, but they are not great at a household level, because not every household has access to that, that scheme. So they are coming up with uh, small-scale irrigation uh, uh, programs that allow farmers to irrigate anything between a quarter an acre to five hectares. And, and they are putting subsidy programs that support that. And I know that very well because that's the last program I implemented in my country before uh, as, as Minister of Agriculture. And, and farmers will go to the bank to do that, especially if they have a market. So there are a number of things that work together, but securing water in Africa is, because of climate change is becoming, the, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And programs to do that are becoming important. And I liked what you said in the morning, also about the fact that the sources of water and how we manage them is as critical as, as, as actually making irrigation affordable. But in Africa, nobody thinks about that because we've not had to worry about the amount of water. We've taken, it's there, nobody uses it. And you think that that water is always going to be there, except now it's, becoming to become, it's beginning to become an issue. So, um, mm -hmm. so we've had what I would call a very provocative and thoughtful dialogue with, and you've put a number of issues on the table that are important to Africa feeding itself, and more importantly to Africa becoming a, a, a dynamic agriculture uh, system, community, set of communities, set of countries mm. with strong agriculture communities. Um, but one of the things that uh, my colleagues here remind me of often is that you can have a long list, but you need to prioritize. What would you, I'm going to go to give you, each one of you a minute to answer this. What were the three priorities you think that uh, governments must consider, investors should think about, as we look to develop the agriculture systems that will help us achieve these goals? Let's start with you, Kanaya. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I think, I think um, if, if, if our governments, if our governments or countries recognize that the national, the national development is highly dependent on a productive and successful agricultural sector to, feed, to be able to feed themselves, first of all. Then the question is, I mean, I will start from what already exists. Seeds, or, or breeds of cattle, or seeds, varieties, or hybrids, fertilizer, irrigation, and policy. That's now, four. The, well, no, no, it's all. <laughs> now, inputs, <laughs> inputs. <laughs> And they're subdivided into three, <laughs> and policy. But, but you see, I will, I will start from what we have not talked about. And that is what really gets me really mad. You know, when you look at the seed sector, what, what percentage, uh, Joe, Joe DeVries, what percentage of African farmers are using improved seeds or hybrids? 20%. Now that's, that's in East that's Africa. only in corn. In corn. And only in corn. Yeah, less than 10%. What percentage of irrigated agricultural land in Africa? 3%. Asia, 46%. Latin America, 60-something percent. Yes. <sighs> and uh, fertilizer, 18%? 18 kilograms per hectare, sorry. Yeah. Roughly. Tom says 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Asia? 50. 90. 70, 70 plus. And about, yes, yes. And Latin America, about 160 kilograms. So, so you see, so African agriculture, in terms of productivity, is operating at about 25 to 40% its potential. Okay? Simple, traditional technologies. Huh? As old as the Nile civilization. Improved seeds, irrigation, and fertilizer. Now, what is, the, what, is the, what is the only factor that determines whether farmers will use or not use any of this? It's the policy environment. If I give a farmer all of these things and say you can double and triple and quadruple your yield, does she have a market? Does she have a road to the market? And if she overproduces, is her price guaranteed? Or is it going to crash? What happens to her produce? Leave something no, no. for you. So, no, so the, that, that's it. Okay. So for me, the problem is it's, it's so simple. Okay. It's inputs and policy. Okay. Inputs and policies. Usha? <laughs> um, to add to what Kanayo said, I would say um, there needs to be a, a concerted effort to engage with the private sector. Of course. Uh, you missed that. <laughs> so give me an opportunity, Kanayo. Um, but I think private sector, not just for seeds, but uh, you know, earlier there was a discussion about uh, solar panels and irrigation. And, mm -hmm. and India, for instance, now a majority of the farmers have a solar water pumps. Mm -hmm. So because electricity is not guaranteed, and so having the solar water pump allows the farmer to irrigate the crop when they want uh, and as needed. So, but, and most of those panels and the pumps come from private sector. 
the government provides a subsidy, so it facilitates. The second point I would say, in addition to engaging with the private sector, for the private sector to operate, they need some level of certainty in terms of the facilitating environment that policy. the government. Policy. Um, uh, beyond <laughs> policy, uh, you know, policy exists, but then if it's not implemented, then it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so uh, some level of certainty for them to operate. Mm -hmm. And I support Kanayo's um, seed input as a critical factor at this stage in Africa, where availability and access to good seed is extremely low. Uh, in majority of the crop, uh, corn maybe is a little better than other crops, but in other crops, it's a it's a major issue. So, mm -hmm. Raj, uh, well, I'd say first and foremost what Usha and Kanayo are saying, and what <laughs> it's Agnes's job to lead, which is, you know, a clear uh, pathway forward to drive up agricultural productivity in Africa, and. It's, we, we humor ourselves with the, the micro debates within that, but there's a broad consensus on what it takes to deliver that. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's well known, it's proven, Agra is proving it, it is an important part of the mix in bringing that to the forefront. And it is politics and inputs and investment, all that, but, but it's this drive towards four tons per hectare. Uh, I love having a quantitative goal because it focuses the mind mm -hmm. and it, focuses the resource expenditure, uh, I think that's the single most important thing. The, mm -hmm. the two other objectives I'd, I'd note are, uh, we haven't talked much about animal protein and, and mm -hmm. protein, but uh, as it pertains to climate change, sustainability, how an African population, hundreds of millions of people that go from $2 a day to $10 a day, how they choose to consume protein mm -hmm. will have a mm -hmm. lot to do with the mm -hmm. future of sustainability mm -hmm. and health outcomes. And, and that's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there to mm -hmm. leapfrog the way we in America, for example, mm -hmm. choose to consume protein. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave it at that <laughs> for now. And then, and then finally, I do think the data revolution is a transformational opportunity. I think we're just scratching the surface on what it means for agriculture and many other sectors, um, but, uh, but it's gonna create a set of opportunities that uh, will uh, allow and unlock more commercial investment and more rapid economic development for uh, people who don't have to be stuck in a poverty trap any longer. And we're just beginning to figure out what some of the examples of success in that space are. Agnes? Thank you. Um, I would say institutions, and that goes to policy, functional institutions. It goes to, to what you said about policy and, and what we, we believe in and dri are driving in Agra around improving governance of the agricultural mm -hmm. sector. So, so that's, to me, that is really critical, functional, functional sectors that, that are able to mobilize the resources but are also able to drive the right policies. Then one of the things that we, where we find ourselves really getting stuck is markets, functional markets, and maybe that relates to private sector. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, a farmer who has a market will buy fertilizers, will mm -hmm. buy seeds. So, so the lack of functional markets is becoming, is, is becomes an increasing challenge for us. The last bit, and something we haven't talked about, is how we start thinking about labor productivity and using mm. 
African youth and women more productively. We have a huge labor force that is not productive. And once tapped into, this labor force can, can do. So, so there's a lot to do. But again, we have to come up with a list of priorities. And, and, and I think uh, if we get institutions right, we get markets right, and we get how to make our youth productive, we will mm -hmm. get these things moving. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're, the panel's in violent agreement that uh, inputs, policies, private sector, uh, government, <coughs> certainty, the clear pathways to driving and scaling up programs. Um, the love the wish we had more time to talk about the animal protein issue and diet diversity and the impact that that will have in, on on the, the food systems when you talk about what's on the fork, or how it drives what's on the farm. And the, 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 I think the institutional, uh, the changes that are necessary, you, you all agree to. And I so appreciate, Agnes, you bringing in the issue of women. Because yes, we need labor productivity that includes youth and women, but without equitable opportunity for women. Uh, we will not see the progress that is necessary for the continent to feed itself, for any of the countries on the continent to feed themselves, or for the, us, the agriculture systems to achieve that trillion dollar opportunity. <coughs> this has been, I hope you agree with me, uh, a, a fascinating discussion that we could go on for the next hour. I have at least two or three more questions. I know I want to ask, and I saw so many hands out here. We do have a reception afterwards, and um, I invite you to um, talk to our panelists there. Because the one question that I didn't ask them that I hope that you will discuss with those here in the audience is why should people here in Silicon Valley care if Africa achieves that trillion dollar opportunity? Big market. Thank you all. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like this episode, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And you can subscribe for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.